Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, with Pastor John King. Good morning, everybody. Well, happy New Year's Eve. I was asking this morning about uh, New Year's resolutions, and uh, I certainly hope you don't make any. Uh, but there were a few words that came out this morning. Uh, one one person shared that they, the Lord had been speaking to them, and they, and she said that they, uh, the word that she got was to be uh, joyful, praise. praise, praise the Lord, joyful. And another person was sharing it about love. So those are the kind of things we can certainly, uh, hopefully, take those into the new year always, right, and each and every day. Well, today we're going to finish the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to cover. The rest of chapter 5, and it'll be in verses, uh, if you turn to your Bibles, it will be in verses uh, 12 through 28 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in case you're just uh, picking up where we left off um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the past few messages from Paul centered around the future event of Jesus' second coming. And there was, and, and there still remains, confusion among the church concerning the effect of Jesus' glorious return. And there were several questions raised among the Thessalonians, which is why one of the reasons he wrote this letter, and the second letter as well. And it prompted Paul to provide some very important details concerning the rapture of the church, which we covered in chapter 4. And he also, so we dealt with that. If you want to hear those messages, you can go to calvaryecity.org if you want to catch up and hear those messages. But we also talked about the attitude and the general character of the world leading up to what's called the day of the Lord and how the church should conduct itself in light of the imminent return of our Lord and Savior. We believe that the Lord could return at any moment. And that, that should put us on, uh, in, a, in a posture of you know, not wanting to wander off and, and not uh, live a life the way we see fit, but to really be ready and to welcome the Lord's return, to be happy about his returning. And so they had a question. They said, well, what about the Christians who died and were laid to rest prior to the second coming? Would they somehow miss the event? And of course, Paul said no. And if you have your Bible open, just look back real quick as I read uh, from Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, look at verses 16 through 17, because Paul is going to give a detailed instruction to the church about the order of resurrection. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, those who happen to be alive when the rapture occurs, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we will always be with the Lord. And he goes on to say, encourage one another with that. Now, uh, we also had another question. What about those who are not part of the church? What, are those, what about those who are left behind? Those who have rejected the gospel message of Christ? In early in chapter 5, Paul contrasts those who live in darkness with those who live, uh, as we should live, as sons of the light and sons of the day. Those who live in darkness are deceived into thinking that everything is fine. That God's coming is either far away or not going to happen at all. And so they tend to live lives of indifference and indulgence and ignorance. 
And so Jesus, he described the same situation near the end, the last days in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. I don't think we have a slide. You're familiar with this one. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that same sad reality is what is going to happen when the Lord comes back. That same sad reality is going to visit the world once again. And the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. We talked about that last week. In verse 3 of chapter 5 of Thessalonians, our, our passage area for today, remember it says, For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And so what we've been through so far, Paul has uh, reviewed the end times, excuse me, the day of the Lord has come. The, ra- the church will be raptured. The Holy Spirit will no longer restrain evil in this world. And the seven-year tribulation will begin. And I think it's important for us in, uh, in our, these times, uh, first of all, a- answering the question, how is the church supposed to live in light of these realities? And there is plenty of stuff out there, plenty of websites and YouTube places all over the internet and plenty of opinions about the end times. But remember, come back to the scriptures and, and, and study the scriptures because they're the authority. The scripture is the authority on these things. And so how is the church to live in light of these certainties? Well, we're supposed to live with sobriety. And I know it's New Year's Eve coming. We're to live with sobriety. We're to live with patience. We're to live with faithfulness to our calling. And you say, well, I don't know what my calling is. Well, you need to speak to the Lord about that because we're, we're all called to serve the Lord in one way or another. And the spread of the gospel. It's so important. But also not forsaking the gathering. And so I'm preaching to the choir here at that point, right? But we are here to lovingly comfort and build one another up in the Lord. That's our, that's our calling from the Lord. That's the will of God for our lives. Now today we're going to conclude this letter, as I mentioned. Now this was also, this, this first Thessalonians, as I remind you, was considered to have been the first of all of Paul's great letters that he wrote. Three quarters of the New Testament is written by Paul. Most of them are the pastoral uh, epistles. And so Paul learned how to communicate at a time when he was either away or locked up in jail. You know, he went, to, he went to, to prison or he was being run out of town. And he learned how to use this correspondence, which, think about it, we're still reading it today. We're still revisiting Paul's letters from 2,000 years ago. It's amazing. And today he's going to give you and I practical instructions concerning how we're to live together in harmony. You know, this is a group, this is a family affair, if you will. And he's going to give us various exhortations about how we treat our leaders, how to deal with those who tend to be difficult, and we all have them, and sometimes we are them, how to live in a personal conduct, and also he's going to talk about our prayer life. And so if you'll look at our passage for today, you'll see it all laid out there before us, what we're going to talk about. It says in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. 
Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, and see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Those three go together. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then he goes on in verse 23 to give a blessing. He says, Now may the, the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who calls you, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. So when you're wondering, how am I going to get through this? Well, the Lord is going to do it. He's faithful. He says, brethren, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That's kind of modified in our modern culture. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And so we're still reading it again 2,000 years later. He's given instruction. And then he closes with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you with Amen. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this time together once again. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have put it on our hearts to set aside this important time of the week to gather in your name, to be comforted by your word, to sing your praises, Lord. And I would ask, Lord God, that the words that we speak today, that we read, would have a lasting effect. It would take us beyond today, beyond the, the, this afternoon, and on into the week ahead of us, Lord. May we be strengthened by your word. It's our nourishment. It's our food. It's our strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord God. May we ask for that all the time so that we might have a deeper understanding of your word and your will for our lives. We pray this now in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we begin uh, verses 12 through 15. We see... The relation, the, 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 we're to pursue peace among one another in a relational way. And this is how we're to behave. He gives very, uh, very precise instructions, I suppose, very detailed instructions. How we're to behave toward the leaders of the church and our brothers and sisters, the church family. How are we to behave before one another? And, and you know, sometimes uh, we have to remember that... Uh, we are to come to the Lord, to come to God as little children. And sometimes it feels like we're being told how to behave as little children. We come as little children, we come as sheep, and we come to uh, receive from the Lord. And through, through Paul's word, we see here, first of all, in verse 12, that we must choose to respect and recognize our shepherds, our pastors, our leaders. And he's, he gives us three ways on how to do that because we get that all confused as well one is to recognize the labor that's put forth recognize the leadership and recognize the counsel that can be offered first he says recognize their labor he says we urge you brethren now that that's it's sort of like a it's it's a it's it's uh, beseech. It's, it's, he's sort of like begging him. He's like, this is really important that you learn how to do this. Recognize those who labor among you. To have regard, to pay attention to. Um, 
And then he uses the word labor. He's really talking about toiling and working to the point of being very tired, if not exhausted. And so as pastors and leaders in today's church, in our churches, uh, I'm not here just to collect a paycheck. I should be willing to earn the compensation to the point of being physically tired. That late night call, whatever it is, that, that you know, problem, that visitation, whatever's happening. Um, Matthew Henry said this for leaders. He said, they're called laborers, but they should not be loiterers. In 1 Timothy uh, 5.17, which we're going we're gonna to cover first and second Timothy after we finish Thessalonians. He said, let the elders who rule be accounted worthy of a double honor, but notice worthy, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine and spend time praying over the word, studying God's word so that it can be brought uh, to uh, Bible studies and, and to our Sunday services. Next he says, not only recognize their labor, but recognize their leadership. He says, and are over you. Now, this, this, um, you know, this sort of thing uh, it can be misconstrued when we think of somebody that's over us. Uh, it's not something you lord over. Um, but to have charge over in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord's work. You know, it's not like, you know, uh, I don't need to explain it to you. It's not like, obviously, that uh, the pastor should rule every aspect of your lives. So in the Lord means not with an iron fist, but with love and setting a good example. In the Lord, an, an elder or a pastor is not like a secular boss or supervisor. A pastor or leader is under the Lord. It was, he's appointed by him, not making up their own rules and their own agenda, but seeking, like all of us should, to give honor and service to Christ. That's all of our roles, and that's the role of the leadership. So we want to recognize their labor, their leadership, and their counsel. He says, and those who admonish you. Now, this admonish is to put in mind, it's to warn uh, a friend of ours, uh, one of the uh, uh, Calvary Chapel pastors, Sandy Adams, uh, he did a, a sermon one time. He said, pastors are like alarm clocks. <laughs> and every, they're always coming back and bringing the word of God to you. And oftentimes we just want to hit that snooze button, right? You know, because they're, they're, that's part of our job is to warn, to warn and to admonish. Not arbitrary authority, but you know, here's what it might look like. Public or private instruction, counseling. If necessary, gentle and faithful correction in order to provide a warning to someone who's heading off a cliff. You know, they're, they've decided to take their life uh, apart from Christ and, and let it rule. They've decided to give up on their faith, if you will. And so pastors are called to warn. And all of us, you know, if you talk about another calling, the calling out of, a, of an evangelist, we're all called to warn others about the judgment of God that we, were, we just read about earlier today. And so he goes on in verse 13, he says, you need to regard them very highly in love, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. In other words, it's always for the work that they do unto the Lord. So what that does is it, it avoids you uh, heaping praise because of certain types of worldly popularity. Uh, good looks, good speaking, uh, eloquence, uh, talent, whatever it is. That is not what you're supposed to esteem in your pastor and your leaders. But you are, he says, very highly in love. And this is, a, this is a great, this means great, exceedingly with an expression of agape for their work's sake. 
Because why? why? Why are we supposed to do that? Why are you and I supposed to be um, respecting those who, who feed us God's word? Um, well, because the job description of a spiritual leader is to instruct you and I through spiritual growth. You know, your boss provides a paycheck. Uh, your counselor provides direction. But your pastor provides you with a desire to show you how to grow spiritually. And what could be more important? And that's why Paul puts it at such a high level, why he emphasizes it so much. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, it says, And he himself, and this is how God sets up the church, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ to build up until... We all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's obvious when I look at myself and when you look at yourself, we haven't arrived at that place. But the Lord has set people uh, in place to help us in there. Again, why is Paul emphasizing this? Well, many would believe, you know, again, we see this church at Thessalonica. They were probably a couple months old. And so their leaders and those who were appointed to be elders didn't have a lot of experience. They were young and inexperienced in the church. And so the people may have been treating them with less respect. And so Paul takes the opportunity to remind them of the proper way and how our behavior towards our leaders matters. But next we turn, as we, he shifts now, he says, we, we must also choose to live in peace with one another. So now we're talking about being in the family of God. He says, be at peace among yourselves. That word peace, harmony, that's to cultivate peace or keep peace. Uh, we often uh, times look at the, the Hebrew word for peace, uh, shalom, perfect peace. And this happens. How does this happen? How do, we, how do we start to go towards peace among us and our fellowship? This happens when we all do our part. We all have a part to play. Doing what God has called you to do. The Spirit of God works best among us when there is unity among us. When we have disunity, when we have disharmony, when we're in competition with one another, when there's backbiting and murmuring and gossiping happening, the Spirit of God is quenched. And we're going to talk about that later in our message. I don't have a slide, but 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so, you and I must choose now uh, to minister to one another with wisdom and patience. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He writes, according to Ephesians 4.12, which we read, the spiritual leaders of the church are supposed to equip the members to do the work of the ministry. In most churches, the members pay the leaders to do the work of the ministry. And the leaders cannot do it all. Consequently, the work begins to weaken and die, and then everybody blames the preacher. It all comes back, right? And that's, that's the sad commentary for many churches. Uh, I've heard many messages. That same passage, uh, that 
preaching message I mentioned from uh, Sandy Adams about pastors and alarm clocks. He, uh, he tied that together with a real story that he grew up in Georgia in a bad little Baptist church and where he saw uh, the church got to be so harsh to that pastor that he actually committed suicide. It was a terrible thing. And the elders came up and some of the deacons came up and said, you know, you guys, honestly, you caused that to happen. Now, we're not in that extreme. This is not, we're not here for drama, okay? So I don't want you to, to get the wrong impression. But we need to be very careful how we, um, how we see our calling in the Lord and our responsibilities among one another. Amen? And so he says here, we exhort you, brethren, to warn those who are unruly. This is where Paul starts to say, hey, here, now this is where we need a little help. This is where we need to work together. He's, uh, he's wanting us to work together as a family, as a church. He's giving instruction on what is needed to minister to three types of people who may be among us. And you'll find it in every church. You have the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Now, how are we to minister to them? Well, first of all, for the unruly, Paul says you're to admonish the unruly. Again, admonish means warn, to confront in a loving way. When you say the word unruly, what you mean is somebody who is, um, it's a military term. It's being disorderly or out of ranks. And so you and I, we need some basic rules among us, a common courtesy. But we also need wisdom to avoid thinking that you and I can call attention to every minor infraction. This, this what Paul is saying here is not a call for sin sniffing, but it's a call for a lovingly confronting undisciplined behavior. Now apparently they, they weren't really listening to what Paul has said in this letter, so he's going to address it a little bit stronger in 2 Thessalonians. He's going to confront the issue again. Because what it, apparently what had happened is people started to live very lazy lives. So they stopped working. They, you know, they had this misunderstanding about the second coming of Jesus. A lot of people decided they weren't going to work anymore. But because they weren't working, they become busybodies among the church. And busybodies, we know, cause lots of problems for us. And so when you and I, when we see someone who has stopped fellowshipping with the Lord... Stop coming together with like-minded believers when they could. You know, they don't have any limitations from their health or their ability to get around. And they, they end up out in the world doing their own thing. And they're not where they belong, and they know it, and you know it. And they're damaging their own soul. Christians like that, Christians who refuse to be in fellowship, are actually being unruly. You're bringing confusion. You're bringing problems. And I know, look, we can, uh, we can all probably testify to our church hurt, our church experience that didn't work out the way we desired that it would. But we also, when we examine those situations, we realize that oftentimes it's a two-way street. But we are not to be unruly. We're to be walking in, together. And why are we to warn? Why is this such an important thing to warn? Well, because the eventual reality that things could get much worse for a person. And Paul deals with that, uh, first Thessal 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verse 6. Paul says, at this point now, he says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. 
And so a person, you know, in that sense, when they take themselves out of fellowship and they live the life that they, you know, whatever they want to do and they, they talk bad about church. How many people have you met? I hate, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I don't love church. Well, how could, you know, that doesn't even, it's not even good math. You know, in a, it just doesn't work. And the church is the body of Christ. And yes, again, we're to look to Christ, not the body. And so it, it could get worse. And so he tells you what to do, uh, how we are together. Now, this isn't just the pastor's job. I mean, oftentimes people are on their best behavior around the pastor. That's what I've found. But it's for us, all of us, to, to work together and to be loving enough and caring enough to speak into the lives of folks that we know who have become unruly. Next, he says, we're to encourage the faint-hearted. This is this encouragement. Uh, the, he says, comfort. Comfort. And that's to speak soothingly. You know, to, uh, faint-hearted person, uh, a Greek uh, um, translation is small-souled. Somebody who's despondent. Somebody who's disheartened. He says that we're to comfort. So, you know, you, you have to minister to one another based on the situation and, and who you're dealing with. Those who are undisciplined and stubborn, they need a firm and direct approach, but others simply need to be lovingly encouraged. I like what Chuck Swindoll wrote about this. He said, these dear people are trembling under the weight of life's problems. They are overwhelmed with anxiety. They're deeply discouraged. They're physically or emotionally debilitated. And we sometimes use the terms depressed, or, or he says blue. Such people need an affirming word, a warm embrace, a shoulder to lean on or to cry on. And so we're to comfort and encourage those who are faint-hearted. And then the third type of person, uh, you could put them in this sort of like that difficult person category, whatever you want to say, is to help the weak. Uphold the weak. And what it means here is not really talking about those who have physical disabilities or physical shortcomings, but it's more spiritual weakness. He says, don't let them fall. They, they would tend, uh, one definition is the weak is, is spiritual weak where you lack in the decision about things lawful and unlawful. Uh, you know, a sign of maturity is not being a legalist. A sign of maturity is knowing the liberty that you have in Christ. And so when you become a legalist, you're actually spiritually weak. And, you know, with this spiritual weakness, we have to recognize that each and every one of us is on a different place in our walk with Christ. A different plane. Not, not spiritually, you know, uh, superior in any sense. But sometimes uh, some of us are slower to mature in our faith than others. We're not growing stronger in the Lord. We're, perhaps we are getting hung up on things. Hung up on legalism. And we need to hold them up with stable patience in prayer and in love. And you know, every one of us can exhibit those three traits, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. But some of us are actually known by those traits. And so he says, be patient with all, with everyone. To be patient means to defer your anger. You may have heard the proverb, I don't have a slide, Proverb 19.11, it says, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. So you have to, you have to decide 
whether you're going to be angry. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. And that's something, you know, that's, a, that's something that you and I need to learn and call it when we're talking about being patient. Now, I'm not talking about overlooking blatant sin or unlawful behavior. But the question is, do you have a short fuse? Are you finding yourselves always getting angry with others because perhaps they don't seem to be growing as much as you are? We often say, uh, you know, at the close of service, you know, go and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3.18. But notice it says grow in the grace, then the knowledge. There's a certain order here, isn't there? You can be very knowledgeable about things and your spiritual walk, very knowledgeable about the Lord, and you can lack grace. And so we must choose, verse 15, to overlook offenses and to seek the good of others. And he gets very pointed here. He says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And the NIV says, make sure. In other words, you know, again, you have a responsibility. If you see somebody that's being a spiritual bully to one of your brothers and sisters in our fellowship, you, have, you should take the time. And again, I'm not speaking of some drama that I'm aware of, okay? This is not. This is just an admonition from Paul. These are Paul's words. These are from the, the Holy Spirit of God. No one renders evil for evil. Evil is that, it's a, it's a speaking of a, mode of thinking, and it could turn into action, a feeling, and that's wicked, that's wrong. And you could go on to a long list of those things. He says, but instead of that, always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. Now, pursuit means to seek it earnestly. Again, we're putting some effort into this. Pursue what is good, what is upright, what is honorable, what is acceptable to God for yourselves and for all. So Paul's pointing to our motives. When you and I, when we do, this is what happens with us. We get our feelings hurt way too easy, right? Uh, when we minister to somebody, are we expecting them to automatically reciprocate with, you know, haste? You know, I just prayed for you, now you owe me, you know, those kind of things. Do we, do we expect favor? Do we expect them to show us favor and appreciation? And how about then the times that you minister to others and they actually reject you or they oppose you? You know, most of us, oh, I've been through all that, right? And so by the time Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, when he was writing his letters, by the time later in his ministry, when he was writing to the church at Rome, he had seen enough of this problem of, of really, you know, hurting one another and repaying evil for evil. I mean, it was part of the Jewish culture, an eye for an eye, but also in Gentile culture. And he said in Romans 12, 17 through 21, repay no one for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And then he said in verse 18, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men, because Paul is admitting that it's very difficult. And it's oftentimes a one-sided affair when we choose to pursue good and not evil. So why, why should I, let's, let's kind of talk about a little bit what we've talked about so far. Why, why should I pursue, or excuse me, why should I love and highly esteem those who God has placed in leadership over a church? Why should you do that? 
It's not because of their personality or their charisma. That's not the reason why you should esteem them. It's not because of their talents or giftings. We mentioned that. It's not because they walk on water or live perfect lives. It's because the pastor and the teacher has been given the duty by God to give good counsel, to warn the church of danger, and to correct or reprove those who are going in the wrong direction. That's the job, you know, it's not, that's the job description of a pastor, of a, of a shepherd. Matthew Henry said this, the people should honor and love their ministers because their business is the welfare of men's souls. Not everyone's called to be a pastor or in leadership ministry. And it's clear from what we just read that there are community and family responsibilities that are need to be shared. And, you know, that's the beauty of it. When you see people doing their part, when you see relationships being established, you see relationships being strengthened, you see people praying for one another, which we see here all the time, helping with practical needs, I see that all the time. Then we know, you know, you wonder, is the Spirit of God moving among us? And that's how, a lot of times how it's manifested, because we're caring for one another. And so I would say to you, and I would challenge you, there are plenty of opportunities, make no mistake. But my question for you is, are you looking for them? Are you looking for ways to minister to others in your church family? In verse 15, it's clear that Paul uh, is talking about retaliation. You know, evil, rendering evil for evil. And this is especially important in our today, our world that we live in. You know, we get in this echo chamber of information from all these people that, you know, we take in information mainly with people that agree with us and agree with our position on things. That's our natural uh, thing to do. But we get in a sort of an echo chamber, and it can really drive you crazy. And we need to remember um, that today, one writer put it this, today many news outlets and social media platforms thrive. They thrive on controversy. They're promoting an us-versus-them mentality. And it's so easy for us to fall into that trap. And so as God's people, we must tune out all that Christian and secular voices that use this sort of inflammatory rhetoric or they preach superiority. And instead, you and I must listen to God's word. We must search our hearts to discover if we have developed an us-versus-them mentality in our hearts. He asked a question. Do you want us to be proven right? Us, if you're an us, you know, like, this is us. Do we want us to be proven right, or we, do we want them to repent and be saved? That's an important question. Because that's what's at stake. You know, we've been talking about Jesus' returning, the coming judgment of God. And so we need to remember from the big picture of things, What's important? Jesus gave instruction to correct the false teachers. He said, you shall, in Matthew 5, 43, 44, he says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's a lot different than what you're going to pick up on your favorite blog, perhaps. We have an unfortunate saying, payback is hell. But the question is, for who? If you cling to and harbor anger 
over how you've been mistreated, you're going to find yourself in physical and emotional distress. You're going to be going to the doctor a lot. You may find yourself in a dis disabled condition because of it, because you have not let go of the anger and you've allowed bitterness to take over your life. So you and I must rely on the strength of the Lord and refuse revenge. I know it's hard. It's a hard task. And that's one of the reasons why we always say we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to lead us. Moving on, we have our next section, verses 16 through 22. We'll try to pick it up here. Pursuing peace personally. Our behavior towards God. Now, hopefully you've come here today to worship God. That's the reason why you came here. Your desire is to take your eyes off the world's problems, to stop looking for others to solve your struggles. You're not looking for religious entertainment or looking down your nose at others. You want to join in corporate worship that glorifies God and produces spiritual fruit that lasts beyond your time here. That's, that's why you came to church this morning. In case, you didn't, in case you didn't know, I just told you why. But before that ever happens, we have to maintain some personal pursuits. And that's what Paul's going to list here. He's got a bunch of one-liner verses. He starts in verse 16, Rejoice always. You must choose to rejoice. Why? Well, because two things are very contagious. Genuine joy or constant gloom. Genuine joy or constant gloom. Those are very contagious. It's like that credit card commercial, you know, what's in your wallet? What's in your pocket? Genuine joy or constant gloom? Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, joy takes the burden out of service. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 18. God loves a cheerful servant as well as a cheerful giver. Every church family has its doubting Thomas or its gloomy Gus. To see them and to listen to them is like witnessing an autopsy or diving into a cold lake on a winter's day. God wants his family to be happy and that means that each member must contribute to the joy. If you think I don't I bring nothing to this church, I have nothing to offer, you can bring joy to this fellowship. Another thing he says in verse 17 is pray without ceasing. Praying is conversation with God without ceasing, meaning without intermission, incessantly, assiduously. We've covered this topic many times through Paul's letters. And we've learned that we're wired for constant communication. We can do many things at once and even pray to the Lord. It's not bound by a specific location or even a physical posture. You may, be still, you may still be wondering about being able to rejoice always because life is difficult and challenging. And the only way to have genuine joy is to pray without ceasing. Not as a last resort, but as, I fir as our first line of defense. You know, you see fear coming on, you pray. You see worry coming on, starting to creep into your life. You pray unto the Lord. You, you have pain and suffering, a real part of life and a real part of getting older. You pray unto the Lord. You have uncertainty. You pray unto the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what we go through each and every day, doesn't it? And so we're to pray. 
Verse 18, you must give thanks. You must choose to be thankful in everything. Give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. And guess what? If you're wondering what the will of God is, here he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He says that he wills that whatever your circumstance, whether it's good or bad, that you would be thankful. Because you know that the, work, the Lord is doing a work in your life. You may not know what it means, what it equates to at that time, but he's doing a work in your life. And then very important here, uh, but not, don't want to overemphasis, but it says here, you must choose to be submissive to the Spirit of God. You know, we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts out, he says, do not quench the Spirit. To quench is to, is to stifle, to suppress that divine influence. And of course, the Spirit, we're referring to the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who lives within you. And often we see in the Bible that this New Testament uses imagery of fire to describe the Spirit's presence and activity. You see it in Matthew 3.11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Acts 2.3, flaming tongues of fire. 1 Timothy 1.6, NIV says, I remind you to fan unto the flame the gift of God. So we don't want to quench the Spirit. And Paul gives that image to describe the idea of resisting the Spirit's work in and among believers. We talked about earlier how we can quench it among us by our infighting and not being in unity. But it also is really gets into the personal aspects too. How do we quench the Spirit? We discourage one another. We get into useless arguments. We divide. We gossip. We speak the truth without love. We're always drawing attention to ourselves, Or we're setting a bad example. That's how we can quench the Spirit. Now keep in mind verses 19, 20, and 21 go together. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. To despise something is to despise, is to take no account. Is to just blow it off. Not even take it seriously. Prophecies. This signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. Many definitions. But we need to have, a, I want to go into a couple of points here concerning that. Some people have suggested that some in the Thessalonian church struggle with prophecy because of the similarity to the pagan cults that they were delivered from. Remember, they came to Christ, most of them came to Christ as, as adults. And some religious cults, such as the cult of the Greek god Dionysus, practiced a form of pagan prophecy that involved ecstatic behavior. And so some people were turned off by that and the gifts of, of the Spirit. In the early church, God used the office of apostle and prophet to bring forth the word of God. We read that in Ephesians 4.11. Because the Bible at this time was not yet published and distributed like it is today. Now, personally, I don't believe that the two offices of apostle or prophet are for today. I don't believe that a person should label themselves as an apostle or label themselves as a prophet. Um, and I guess that would cause you not, not to walk out on me. Say, anyway, but, uh, but in the, um, here, here's what I believe. And you can, you can take it for what it's worth. For believers, I think there are two... Well, first of all, let me say, I do believe that the prophetic gift of prophecy 
of the Holy Spirit remains active and is to be used by God for two purposes. So if you're taking notes, this is what I believe. And I see, I'll show you in the Bible. It says here, first of all, the gift of prophecy is for believers. 1 Corinthians 14.3. It says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. That's the gift of prophecy being exercised among his people. If somebody's trying to shout you down and, you know, the Lord does say it, the Lord, and they want to tell you a bunch of crazy stuff that just doesn't make sense with a whole bunch of anger mixed in, then it's probably not, and I won't be the judge, God will be the judge, it's probably not the prophetic gift being exercised. But for believers, it's to be built up, to be strengthened by encouragement, and to ease their trouble with comfort. That's a gift of prophecy. But for unbelievers, look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 through 25. It says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in. So an unbeliever comes in among us into a local fellowship. And he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. In other words, the power of the Holy Spirit is working to convince that person that they need to be saved. They need to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And it says, thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. I've seen situations where people, uh, they felt, they sensed the presence of God. I, we had it happen down on 17 South one time during worship. They sensed the presence of God was so heavy that they had to get out of the building. They had to leave because they, they were so convicted by their sin. And that's the power of the gift of prophecy. That's, I believe, to be the truth. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working. And so, verses 19 and, uh, through 21, they go together. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, and learn to live with discernment. Notice he says in verse 21, test all things and hold fast to what is good. That is, to examine or to scrutinize. We often talk, especially in Calvary Chapel movement, we often talk about placing a very high value on the teaching of the Word of God. That's a central feature of our movement. But don't forget your responsibility. And what is that? That's to prove the things that you hear coming from this pulpit. You take it back to the Word, to, to the Lord. Be like the Bereans. Take it back to the Word of God and make sure that what I say is coming from God's Word and it's God's truth. Amen? So hold fast to what is good. How? Be filled with the Holy Spirit and study the Bible to separate what is genuine from what is not. Simple. That's something we are all to do. Uh, David Guzik write, wrote this. I think it's wise. He said, evil and deception can show itself even in a spiritual setting. So it's important for Christians to test all things. And when the test has been made according to the standard of God's word and the discernment of the spirit among the leaders, then we hold fast to what is good. And then finally here in verse 22, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Kind of covered that earlier, but you know, how does it look? Notice how it's worded. Not just to abstain from evil, but to abstain from the very appearance of evil. You and I, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Is there anything that I do, that I make a regular habit to do, that looks like sin? I'm not going to start listing things. 
does it lead to sin or does it border on sin? I mean, it's an it's a examination that you need to have with those you trust and with the Lord. The Bible has, when we talk about uh, sinning against the Holy Spirit, I think it's important for us to be reminded. There are four things that the Bible says and warns us about when it comes to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. First of all, we need to be alert against potential sin when we quench the Spirit. We've talked about that. Stifling, snuffing out. The Holy Spirit's always working in the life of the believer to lead him to do God's will. And we quench the Spirit when we ignore him, when we neglect him, when we disobey him, or by simply procrastinating. You know, you, you got a thing in your life, you know the Lord wants to deal with it, whatever it is, and you just keep putting it off. So we can quench the Spirit. We also need to be careful that we don't grieve the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, we don't have a slide for that. To grieve the Spirit means to pain or to vex or to sadden. You know, the Holy Spirit is holy and righteous. And the believer grieves the Spirit when you and I, you and I allow impure things to penetrate into our life. When we behave immorally, when we act unjustly, and we, we allow or we participate ourselves in anything that's contrary to the nature of the Spirit. So we can quench the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit, and then of course the big one, blasphemy against the Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin. If you take your life to the grave, you take everything you are as a person to the grave without giving your life to Jesus, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the Lord can't forgive you from the grave, in the grave. And then, of course, we're familiar that we're not also to, not to lie to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, 3, and 4, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So we need to be alert to that potential sin. Quenching, grieving, of course, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and lying to the Holy Spirit. We conclude our message today. We conclude with Paul's prayers. He says in verse 23 through 28, he now he prays. He prays out this letter to them. It's as though, as though it's, you know, it's his farewell. And he does it. Uh, he, first of all, he prays in view of God's character. God is the God of peace. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The God of shalom, perfect peace, every kind of peace and blessing. And peace with God as well. Salvation. He says, sanctify you completely. God's sovereignty to make you holy in every way. In one version says. And that your whole spirit, soul, and body, the trichotomy of man, be preserved blameless. Speaking of your entire being. This speaks of our whole man being preserved. His body and his soul as well as his spirit. Believers are not to be select some ghost-like figure or some formless spirit. We talked about when we're laid to rest and our body stays in the grave. What happens to our soul, our spirit? Well, it's, it's being redeemed. It's preserved blameless. Paul also declared with absolute surety. So you say, well, you know, if you have doubts, what if you're a doubter? You doubt, you doubt God's word. You doubt God's truth. He declares in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. This is the assurance that you can have of God's salvation, his work in you from the beginning to the end. And he will also do it. He can be, placed, he can be trusted. So the question today for any of us here or anybody that hears it, 
Have you placed your faith in him? Have you placed your trust in him through Christ? And then he asked for prayer. He says, brethren, pray for us. You know, reciprocal. Will you pray for our church? And that's the question for us. Will you pray for our church? Will you pray for your church? Will you pray for our leaders? Will you join us for men's prayer on Tuesday night at 6 o'clock? Will you join in ladies' prayer? Finally, he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Again, this is a common greeting in the ancient world. Uh, church history says they had to modify that because it used to be the women over here and the guys are over here. Anyway, we, uh, we don't uh, practice that in our culture very much. Um, he says, and I charge you by the Lord that his epistle be read to all the holy brethren. In other words, he's, he's now saying, I want you to now go not only take this to heart and apply it to your life, but I want you to read it to all the churches. And then he, he closes, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And so as we close for today, um, I, I'll leave you with a, another quote from David Guzik. He says, whatever God has to say to us, in all the New Testament letters, there are things that search the heart and make it quake. It begins and ends with grace. All that God has been to man in Jesus Christ is summed up in it. All his gentleness and beauty, all his tenderness and patience, all the holy passion of his love is gathered up in grace. What more could one soul wish for another than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with him? And so that's something we should desire for all of us, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with each and every one of you. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that um, you go before us uh, in all aspects of our lives today and through the week. Lord, we know that, uh, well, we know that we don't know what, what awaits us. We don't know what challenges we'll face even today. We don't know what this week is going to unfold in. We have, of course, high hopes for things we'd like to do in this coming year. Uh, maybe we've set some personal goals of some things that we're looking forward to. Uh, whatever it is, some travel, some, uh, you know, uh, personal goals. But Lord, I just pray that we would take the time um, to bring these things before you, before we get ahead of you in our lives, as we often do. Bring all of our desires and our concerns before you, before your throne of grace, so that we might walk in your will and we might do the things that you call us to do. So we pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.